welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Um, I started a series last week, actually, uh, that I entitled The Coming of a Promise. And what I'm doing is um, leading into Advent, into the Christmas season, by considering the story of Christmas, the coming of God's promised Messiah, and using it as a template for the way in which God makes and keeps promises to people like you and I. Um, In that introduction, we saw how Christmas was the culmination at the fulfillment of a promise that God had made thousands of years before starting in Genesis chapter 3 and then unfolding throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God promised that a Messiah would come, a deliverer would come who would save their people from their sins and from the predicament that their sins had caused. And we followed that promise through to its fulfillment. And I noted last week that when God makes a promise, it's sure whether he makes a promise like the coming of the Messiah or whether he makes a promise to you, it is sure because A, God cannot lie. Secondly, B, God is faithful. C, God is unchangeable. D, God is capable. When he makes a promise, there is nothing that can stand in the way of the fulfillment of that promise. And Advent is the season that we celebrate the fulfillment of God's word, the coming of Messiah, the fulfillment of his promise. And what I've suggested is that God makes and keeps promises. He's a promise-making, a promise-keeping God. And not only significant promises, obviously, like the coming of the Messiah, but he makes promises to people like you and I. And the, short, the purpose of this short, relatively short series is to perhaps create or hopefully refresh hope and expectation in your hearts regarding promises that God may well have made to you. I talked about the fact that God speaks to us, whether it's through the reading of his word or in the quiet seasons as we're waiting upon him or through a prophetic voice or a friend or counsel. We we become aware that God has plans and purposes concerning us, that he's made certain promises regarding us. And I'm using this, the greatest of all promises, as a template, a paradigm to consider how those promises are likely to unfold in our lives. So this morning I want to consider the kinds of people that God makes promises to. And I want to read a portion of Scripture to you. It's probably a portion of Scripture that we tend to skip over mostly. But it's the first chapter of Matthew and it's the first 23 verses. And the reason we skip over it is it's a long list of names. But let me read it to you. Okay, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadad, Abinadad, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Usually we're asleep by about this time, aren't we? Or we've decided Matthew chapter 2 looks really attractive. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. These are the people who carried that wonderful promise to its fulfillment. And as you read a passage like this, Presuming, of course, you do, and to be truthful, most of us don't. But as you do, if you do, there are a number of things that strike you as you look at this list of names, this bird's eye view of the genealogical history of this incredible promise. Firstly, you do, you do wonder why there are lists like this in the Bible. Does anybody really care about these people except their mothers? I, I've, however, have explained that the truth is for many, many people in the world and for many culture, cultures, lists like this actually are incredibly important. Some of you may remember that some months ago, probably 12 months or so ago, I read a portion from a book uh, entitled Infidels by Ariane Hersi Ali. Uh, Ariane Hersi Ali is a, a Somali girl, and at the very beginning of this incredible story, she explained how her grandmother sat her down and taught her from a very, very early age uh, how to re remember and recite her genealogical history stretching back 800 years. She was like only four or five, but she could remember back 800 years of her forefathers. And she explained that for Somali people, for many people in the world, it's all about the story that you inhabit. What, what um, what place and part you pay in a story that has unfolded to you and will unfold from you. And it's all about your obligations and responsibilities in that ongoing story. As I mentioned before, most of us really don't understand that. We postmodern Westerners labor under the illusion and are encouraged in that illusion to believe that the only story that really matters is our own one. It's about my dreams. It's about what I want to uh, achieve. And for the most part, apart from perhaps an academic interest on some folks' parts, we, we don't really place much value on the connections uh, to the past and uh, perhaps not much in the way of a legacy for the future either. Um, you know, I mean, I know we're concerned about the pollution that plastic bags create, but pretty much think nothing beyond that. And we certainly don't think about the possible moral pollution that we might be leaving for future generations to clear up. We really don't think beyond our own time. But the Bible tells a very different story from the rad radical individualistic one that you and I have imbibed. 
what we see from lists like this is that, firstly, God is a God of history and that He's really committed to the promises that He has made, and we see Him partnering with people in the unfolding of those promises. What strikes you as you read this list of names is um, the kinds of people that he chooses to partner with in the unfolding of those promises. And they are, for the most part, the kinds of people that um, I suspect you and most certainly I would not choose. I mean, it starts off in this list with Abraham, the inveterate liar. It moves to Jacob, the manipulative narcissist. It goes to Judah, who conspires with a prostitute. We've got David, the adulterous murderer. We've got Solomon, the idolatrous womanizer. We've got Manasseh in there, who's as wicked a king as Israel ever experienced. As you look at this list, you'll find that there are outsiders, people who didn't even belong to the community of faith. Surprisingly, for that time, women are mentioned. It's very unusual in a patriarch, patriarchal culture to include women in a genealogy. The key word of genealogies is beget, not bear. And it's all about the male line, but in this genealogy, women are mentioned. Now, that, that might be overlooked if they had at least been women of good standing, but the ones that Matthew mentioned aren't even close to being women of good standing. I mean, there is Tamar, who plays the harlot. There's Rahab, who was a harlot. There's Ruth, the Moabite, who came from a nation of harlots. And then, of course, there's Bathsheba, the adulteress. When I read a list like this, I don't know how you feel about it, but when I re read a list like this, I feel maybe that there is a chance that God could perhaps make promises to me too, that perhaps he could make and keep promises to me. To, to, to you, ordinary, flawed-to-the-bone people like you and me, like these people. Look, look, for example, at the last name on that list, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called Messiah. If we were to consider Mary, and it's difficult to consider Mary in, in her role in the unfolding of a promise because it's actually really hard to view her through the mists of unrealistic tradition that have sprung up around her since that first Christmas. So many have, of us have been trained to actually look at the Christmas story through a grid of lavish unnaturalness, and we've imbibed those dreamy-eyed notions about the settings and circumstances surrounding the Annunciation and the Incarnation. I, I suspect there's probably not one of us here who haven't seen some kind of dramatic on-screen presentation of the events of the Annunciation, where Gabriel comes to Mary and announces what's about to happen. And Usually, as it unfolds, a glorious light appears bathing Mary in unnatural brilliance. She is invariably presented as an incredibly beautiful one, uh, young woman, one who in our day would readily be snapped up by perhaps a modeling agency or a Hollywood scout. She is gloriously apparelled in a white dress with a pale blue Nepali pashmina to go with the, the dress. You know, birds are singing in a beautiful garden setting. It's obviously springtime since the flowers are coming into full and beautiful um, bloom. But, you know, um, Hollywood aside, I mean, that sort of picture resembles more something from Disney, you know, something that we would see in Snow White or Pocahontas or something like that. And I mean, <clears throat> why wouldn't God want to step into a scene like that? I mean, it's beautiful. 
However, as beautiful as it might seem, it's probably far as far removed from reality as one could get. And if we can put aside our Hollywood notions for a moment, we could imagine what actually the scene probably did look like. Firstly, Mary was probably in her parents' very humble dwelling rather than in a flower-filled garden setting. She was probably much more likely to be scrubbing floors or possibly dishes than she was kneeling in dreamy-eyed meditation in the garden. The shine on her face, if there was one at all, was probably more likely due to beads of perspiration than the unnatural glow of transcendence. And truth be known, she probably didn't look like a Hollywood siren. She was probably a plain, simple Jewish girl, one with a simple faith raised in a very poor home. She was scheduled for an arranged marriage and was headed for a predictably uneventful future as the wife of a local carpenter. Now, I'm not trying to mount a crusade against church tradition in saying these things. I'm just noting that the Bible does not require or mandate unnatural elegance at this point in the story. Everything in the story, on the contrary, argues for ordinariness and even lowliness. When Mary responds to the angelic announcement in Luke chapter 1, verse 48 and 52, she speaks about her low estate or of being low degree. There's nothing in this that elevates her beyond, as I say, ordinariness and probably even lowliness. Now, my, my background was from a, a portion of the body of Christ that probably would wince at what I've just said about Mary. And they would have been very quick to remind me that Don, she's the mother of God. She's the most blessed uh, among women. She's highly favored of God. And, and of course, Gabriel did say that in Luke chapter one, verse 28. He said, hail thou art the one that art highly favored. And, and the Greek word there is akaratuo, which means you are one who has been uniquely privileged. And inasmuch as Mary is being offered a once in all of history role as the privileged one to carry the Christ child to, uh, the, to, to the fulfillment of that promise, that is a fitting description of her. However, I would want to note this, because that word karatuo, by the way, is used twice in Scripture, once here and once in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where it's used of you and of me. One highly favored, one uniquely chosen to bear something of God's purpose in the earth. It says in that passage that we are accepted in the beloved, the Greek word karatuo. Is, is the same one used by the angel. The Holy Spirit moved Paul in Ephesians to use that word in describing you. And like Mary, who is being offered a once in all of history role, just as no one else could bear the child of promise, no one else except you can bear the purpose and promise that God has given to you. You too are being offered a once in all of history role as you carry the promise of God that he's purposed for you. You know, the, the hard thing, <clears throat> wow, rain. <laughs> the drought is broken. Um, we so often miss the purposes of God, I think, because of their ordinariness. Um, Jesus' contemporaries largely rejected him, and the reason that they rejected him is that their eyes could not 
penetrate the veil of his complete, utter, absolute ordinariness. And when they looked at the words that were coming out of his mouth, all that they could see was the local carpenter. They couldn't perceive anything beyond the ordinariness. And that's a story that just goes on and on and on. You know, the two people who were walking on the road to Emmaus mistook him for just an ordinary traveler. Mary thought he was the gardener. In Hebrews, it talks about the fact that we, we entertain angels unawares. We're not even aware who these beings are. The supernatural goes on around us, and more often than not, we completely miss it by virtue of its ordinariness. It's just all too ordinary. Justin Welby, the Bishop of Canterbury, says, God shows himself most often to be a God of small things, small people, and small places. I'd like to change the word small, and I think we can do it without damaging what he said to the word ordinary. God shows himself most often to be a God of ordinary things, ordinary people, ordinary places. And the Christmas story and the fulfillment of the promise happens in ordinary people's lives, flawed to the bone, ordinary people's lives. Paul talks about this when he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 26. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. When God chose you and put promise in you, who, look at who you were. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Ordinary, ordinary to the bone. Now, the fact that I'm suggesting that Mary was actually a very, very ordinary person does not minimize the fact that she responded magnificently in her ordinariness to the invitation to participate in the coming of the promise. Mary said yes to the possibility of God's promise happening in and through her. And in both Mary's case and in ours, saying yes to to the promise actually is saying no to something else. When you say yes to something, when you turn towards something, you turn from something in order to do that. And the thing that she turned from and the thing that you and I have to turn from is the prevailing spirit in every age that wants to suffocate the promise that God gives. You know, from the very beginning of the Bible, when God promises to Adam and Eve, there will come a seed. Not long after that, Cain kills Abel. And you can go through the Bible. Pharaoh tries to kill all the Hebrew boys, right down to Queen Athalia who tried to kill the seed royal, right down to Herod who tries to kill the coming of the promise. There's always a spirit afoot in this age that's trying to kill off promises. It's trying to suffocate the promise that God gives to people. And you and I have to turn our back from that promise to the one who has made the promise. You know, Mary, as removed as she is in so many levels from where we live, nevertheless lived in an age that in many respects absolutely parallels the one that we, that we live in. Now, some of you have heard me say what I'm about to say before. Forgive me for being redundant, but it is an observation that really does bear repeating. It seemed that Mary come from Nazareth, and most of us imagine that Nazareth was probably a sleepy little village with a handful of inhabitants, you know, a few 
kind of small dwellings with um, you know, animals kind of running to and fro. And, and when fam- famously Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth, we assume that he's referencing its size. However, that may not have, in fact, have been the case. G. Campbell Morgan claims that Nazareth was, in fact, a bustling town of probably 15,000 inhabitants. By the way, that, that actually says something else, too, to me. When it tells you that Jesus was the carpenter of Nazareth, again, most of us imagine that it was a small town. There was only probably one carpenter. He was the carpenter. He was the baker. That was the teacher. If there's a town of 15,000 people, there's probably a lot of bakers, a lot of teachers, and a lot of carpenters, but he was the carpenter of Nazareth. If you wanted a really good job done, if you wanted integrity and, and just quality, he's the carpenter from Nazareth. Anyway, that's an aside. You can have that for nothing, okay? <laughs> um, 15,000 people, that's a, that's a busy little metropolis in those days. And the reason that M- Morgan suggests that Nazareth was not just a bunch of mud huts but was a bustling metropolis is that Nazareth geographically was halfway between Jerusalem in the south and Tyre and Sidon in the north. Now, these were the large cities. And the trade traffic went through Jerusalem up past Nazareth onto Tyre and Sidon and, and vice versa. And being halfway between the two, Nazareth became the stop-off place, the overnight stop for the travelers, for the soldiers, for the merchants, as they moved between these larger population centers. Now, entrepreneurs, and Jewish people seem to excel at being entrepreneurs, they noticed that a quick dollar, or in this case a denarius, could be made with so many male travelers gathered in one place, so many wants, so many needs that can be easily serviced and fast money can be made. And Nazareth actually became known as a place of prostitutes, rip-off artists, and quick-dollar merchants, and very quickly gained a reputation at that time, much in the same way as Bangkok or San Francisco has gained in our day. So Nathaniel's derogatory comment, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, was not a relationship or not a reference to its size, but rather to its reputation. Imagine growing up in an environment where rampant materialism and sexual promiscuity are rife. Wouldn't that be terrible? It was the prevailing spirit of the age. And I I don't want to be crass, uh, but I I do want to say Mary's resistance to that spirit made her a candidate for the promises of God happening in and through her. It's rather obvious that in order to fulfill the promise of a virgin shall conceive, that she had to be one. And that might not have been as easy as some people suggest, thinking that Nazareth was just a small out-of-the-way place. There may well have been pressure that she joined the trade and set up her family, made sure that her family prospered in difficult times. But Mary said no to that. Mary not only turned her back to the prevailing spirit of the age and said no to something, but she said yes to somebody. And she said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And I was reading Joshua this week and obviously thinking about this message and Joshua chapter 24 verse 23 stuck out to me because Joshua says, 
Now get rid of all the foreign gods that you have with you. Turn your back on the spirit of the age. And then he says, say an unqualified yes to God, to the God of Israel. And God has made promises to you and I, but we need to say an unqualified yes to them. And that involves saying no to some other things. You can't have your cake and eat it too, as we would say. Turning to somebody means turning from something. Mary could not possibly produce this promise. This promise was an act of God's grace, pure and simple, from start to beginning. From start to end, sorry. Beginning to end. Get it right. I do know the beginning from the end. Okay, we're approaching the end, in case you're worried. Mary couldn't produce this promise, but it seems that she could scuttle it. And I want to tell you, you can't produce the promise in your life. If God has made one to you, it'll be grace from start to finish. But I tell you, you can do things that can either scupper it or at least delay and detour it or possibly dilute it. You, you think of Samson, for example. Samson, the birth of Samson involves more angelic activity than any other uh, incident in the Old Testament as far as I'm aware. There was not any angelic activity around other people's births in the same way that occurred around Samson's birth. And often that kind of activity is indicative of something that God wants to do through a person. You often get that kind of activity when something amazing is planned. And God in his purpose and promise, said to Samson and to Samson's parents, this man will be a mighty deliverer. He will set his people free. When he, has, when he is finished, Israel's yoke of bondage to the Philistines will be broken. Well, you read the story, and, and at the end, although he ended with uh, killing more people in one go than he had killed all through his life in terms of Philistine enemies, the reality is the people of Israel were not free. They didn't get set free. You say, well, you, you said before, Don, that God is capable and that he's, that he's faithful and that he's unchangeable, and then when he makes a promise, it's sure to happen. All that's predicated on an unqualified yes on our part to say to the promise, happen in me. Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word because God isn't going to do those things irrespective of your response. And as you read the response, uh, as you read the story of Samson, one of the things you know about Samson is that he did not turn his back on the prevailing spirit of the age, but he kept turning back to it, turning back to it, turning back to it. And ultimately, it was his own undoing. And although there was some fulfillment of God's purpose and promise in him, it did not reach its zenith. It was, it was scuppered by his own unwillingness to say an unqualified yes to the Holy Spirit. All of this really does impact on you and I. There's a portion in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, and it goes like this in the message translation. I saw, it took my breath away, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, 144,000 standing there with him, his name and the name of his Father inscribed on their foreheads. And I heard a voice out of heaven, the sound like a cataract, like the crash of thunder. And then I heard music, harp music, and the harpist singing, and new song before the throne and the four animals and the elders. Only the 144,000 could learn to sing the song. 
They were bought from the earth, lived without compromise, virgin fresh before God, whenever, wherever the lamb went, they followed. Now, I don't want to get into, you know, uh, Revelation's symbolism and have some kind of, you know, Bible study on that. Let me just simply say, the 144,000 isn't a literal 144,000 Jewish people. It's a picture of the church, the church in its completeness. And this picture of the church with the name of God inscribed on its forehead and bought from the earth, lived without compromise, virgin fresh before the Lord. Now, that, that passage is symbolic of the church. Verse 4 in another translation says, these are the ones who have never polluted themselves with women. That isn't supposed to be some disparaging remark concerning appropriate sexual relationships or some sexist put-down of women in general. You have to understand the language of Revelation is apocalyptic language. It's symbolic language. It's not a reference to physical intercourse or, or, or literal woman. It's, it isn't a call to celibacy. It's a reference to their calling to moral purity, purity and fidelity, absolute faithfulness to Christ. It's exactly the same thing that Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians and said, I promised your hand in marriage to Christ, presenting you as a pure virgin to a husband. And this is a symbolic purity. This is a people who have turned from the spirit of the age. They've said no. And they've turned to somebody and said, yes, yes to your promise. The woman that these 144,000 refuse to consort with and be intimate with is the spirit of the age. It's described in a couple of chapters on in the book of Revelation as the whore of Babylon. It's the spirit of the age pictured as a prostitute. And, and the picture of the church here is one that is turned from that spirit and said an unqualified yes to God and embraced his promises. You know, the reality is the church is in the world. You've heard it said before, but we are different from it. We are not, we are not of it. And if you like an illustration, then, you know, the ship is made for the sea. And that's where it belongs. But, but the difference between the ship being in the sea and the sea being in the ship is a huge difference. The body of Christ is made for the world to redeem, to restore, to take the good news. But when the world gets into the, into the body of Christ, we, we have a tragic scenario going on. Now, in choosing to partner with people to bring his promise to bear on the earth, he doesn't require perfect people. None of the people in that list were perfect. Some of them, as I said to you before, flawed to the bone, tragic but what it does require is people who, acknowledging that flawedness, turn and say an unqualified yes to both the redemptive purposes of God and then the promises of God's power and purpose happening in and through them. Ordinary, lowly people, broken people. If you're feeling particularly unqualified this morning to be anything of a carrier of God's purpose, then that sense of disqualification, that ordinariness probably actually pushes you up the list. You're the kind of people that God wants to choose. But at the end of the day, you have to say yes. You cannot sit there and remain in that sense of disqualification. You have to turn from the spirit of this world which seeks to suffocate that promise and say an unqualified yes. Holy Spirit, have your way. You have to respond to the grace of God. Could I please have the musicians? And I want to read one more scripture. I told you I knew the difference between the beginning and the end. 
and we've got to the end. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, to be like Mary, incredibly ordinary, nothing, nothing absolutely outstanding, ordinary, but magnificently committed, an unqualified yes to the purposes and promises of God. And I want to just encourage you this morning that as we worship, you might like to just simply do business with God, turn if you need to turn in repentance, if you just want to clarify again, Lord, you've, you've heard me say yes, I'm saying, it, I'm saying it again. As we come into this Christmas season where we are reminded that you are a promise-keeping God, I say yes to your promises. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.